Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing okay? Yes, that's pretty good. That's, some of you almost are doing okay. Excellent. Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question, right? Are you doing okay? Do you really want the answer right now, or would you like to preach your sermon, Pastor Sean? I would like to preach my sermon, so you can just tell me afterwards. How's that? Uh, no, you can't. You can't tell me afterwards, actually, because I won't be here afterwards. So Sheila, my wife, is becoming the commander of the force support squadron today. So when I, oh, yes, <laughs> I was just telling you that to say, I'm going to say amen at the end of the service and just jet out the door because she gave me a butts in seat time. If I'm not there, I'm in big trouble. So I'm going to try not to be in big trouble today. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we find ourselves. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, but it's in this uh, section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is, is doing this uncomfortable, odd thing. He's boasting about himself and his ministry. And it's not something that he would normally do. In fact, he's made the point in this book, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about Jesus Christ. But there's this problem, there's this difficulty, and that is that the Corinthian church, whom he loves, the church that he brought the gospel to, uh, people that are in the kingdom of God because of his proclaiming of the gospel, they are being led astray by these false teachers, these false apostles who've moved in, and part of the way they gained the attention of the Corinthians was to brag about how great they were, how wonderful they were, how amazing they were, and then they also began to talk down about the Apostle Paul. You know, he's really not that great, he's really not that wonderful, I'm not sure why you're listening to him. And Paul could care less whether or not he's famous, he's not worried about being more popular than the other apostles. His concern is that these guys who've moved into Corinth are preaching a false gospel, and in doing so, they're leading people away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ that was described in chapter 11. So he's going to continue on with that in chapter 12 and then finally explain uh, a little bit more clearly why it is he's using this tactic of boasting. So chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf... I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. So again, Paul is continuing this idea of these, these boastings, but he's, he's kind of doing this kind of back and forth thing where he says something really amazing, but then he says that's not really the important thing. And then he says something really common, and that's the important thing that he really wants us to get to. And so in here, this first boast, it's going to be boasts about visions, about revelations, about things revealed to him by God himself. But at the end of that, after he says this, he's going to play it down and say, but that's not really the impressive part. What's more impressive is how God can use me in my weaknesses. That's really where he's going with this. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, had visions and revelations that the majority of Christians never, ever will. I would say beyond the majority, like almost no other Christians will ever have this in their life, what the Apostle Paul had. 
The Apostle Paul, uh, in Acts chapter 9, the way he met Jesus was a miraculous vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So again, put this in a timeline. Jesus died on the cross, was buried. Three days later, he rose again. He came back to life, but then he ascended up into heaven. And much like today, he wasn't seen after that, right? He was up in heaven. Well, here comes the Apostle Paul. At the time, his name was Saul of Tarsus, and he made it his job to persecute Christians. And so he was putting Christians to death. He was putting them in prison. And as he's on his way to Damascus, Jesus, who was formerly dead, who's currently residing in heaven, the resurrected Jesus Christ appears to the Apostle Paul. Paul had a vision of Jesus Christ. That's the Apostle Paul that's talking here. So if somebody wants to brag about visions, Paul really could do it. It was in that vision that Paul surrendered himself to Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for the gospel. Beyond that, then, in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul receives a vision uh, from a man in Macedonia who calls him there to bring the gospel, and thankfully he did, because that's where we get the Berean church, the Philippian church, the Thessalonican church. These churches in the area of Macedonia were started because of a vision that brought Paul to those areas of the world. In chapter 18, he sees the Lord again. In Acts chapter 22, he's going to see Jesus again. And then in Acts chapter 27, and this just keeps happening in chapter 27, it's actually an angel that speaks to the Apostle Paul. And so all of these amazing visions and revelations that the Apostle Paul had, well, he's going to describe one more that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, And it is a little bit confusing because Paul is not claiming this to be himself, but it's said in such a way uh, that it is him. In the context, you recognize that it is him. And I've actually struggled back and forth with this. Uh, But essentially, this was kind of a a little Jewish tick that they had back in the day uh, where they would want to brag about themselves, but they wanted to sound humble about it. So they just wouldn't mention their name. They would say, well, I know a guy. And then the other guy, oh, yeah, well, I know a guy. But you knew the guy that they knew was the guy that they were, right? They were talking about themselves. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's talking about himself. Again, another vision, and he can't even fully describe it if he was physically in the body or if he was just taken in the spirit. But he was taken up to what he calls the third heaven here, or later he's going to call it paradise. Remember Jesus talking to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul's saying that he was brought up into heaven, into the presence of God. And he saw things there, he heard things there that he can't even express to you. Things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, things that nobody would understand. It was just too amazing, the Apostle Paul said, to even explain these things to you. Now, you could brag about that guy, Paul says, But what I would rather do is brag about my own weaknesses. That's what he really is going to do. He's going to brag instead about his weakness. Now, think about the silliness of this, right? In general, people don't brag about their weaknesses. They brag about how fast they can run, how far they run, their bench press, how much money they make, their car. They brag about amazing things, right? Up until a certain age, then they start bragging about how many surgeries they had and... (laughs) how their shoulder clicks when they move it like this. But even in that, it's really not bragging in their weakness. They're actually kind of bragging about how amazing they are because I survived all those surgeries. You would think I couldn't even use this shoulder. Listen, click, 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 but watch this. Grab the can off the top shelf. I can do it. Like we just find ways to brag about ourselves. We're always bragging about how great we are. Paul says, I don't want to brag about how great I am. 
He's going to brag instead about his weaknesses. Imagine how fun that would be if someday your friends came up to you or your enemies and just started going, you want to know how weak I am? They start laying it on the line. That's a different kind of bragging, right? Well, that's what Paul's essentially doing here. He wants to brag. He wants to boast in his own weaknesses, it says in verse 5. And then in verse 6 there, he says, look, even if I was going to brag, I'm not going to be foolish and brag about things that aren't true. Even the things I brag about, these are all going to be truthful things, which is kind of a hint that some of the things and some of the visions that these other apostles were seeing, these false teachers, these super apostles, they were probably made up things. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to brag about what's true. But if I'm going to brag about myself, it's going to have to be about how weak I am. And so that's what he begins to do. He's going to describe one of his weaknesses there in verse 7. This weakness came, though, specifically because of the amazing visions that God had given him. He says this in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He says it twice. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness." Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So here's the Apostle Paul describing, and it's kind of a famous passage, a thorn in his flesh. But the important part of this is uh, the understanding of where this thorn or what the purpose of this thorn in the flesh is. This was something that was given to him to prevent him from bragging about himself, exalting in himself, because he had seen so many amazing things. God had done so many awesome things in him and through him that two things happened. Number one, Satan said, Oh, I'm going to mess with this guy. Now, we can't have this guy out there talking about all the things that God has said to him. So a messenger of Satan is sent to torment, harass, beat, or buffet, that might be the translation that you have, just to mess with the Apostle Paul, just to, to drive him crazy, to annoy him and harass him. A messenger of Satan sent for that purpose. The other thing that we have to recognize, though, is in this, even though Satan had meant it for torment for the Apostle Paul, God is going to use this to prevent the Apostle Paul from suffering from pride. So what Satan meant for evil, God is now going to use for good in the life of the Apostle Paul. And ultimately what it's helping Paul do is realize seeing a revelation is not nearly as cool as being the revealer of the revelation. In other words, the whole point of all of this for the Apostle Paul is compared to God, compared to Jesus Christ, I am weak. Well, these false apostles, it seemed, were so impressed with themselves that Jesus sometimes gets downplayed a little bit. And it kind of gives the wrong impression to the people who were following their teachings that they're the amazing one and not so much God. 
Well, that's the struggle here. Now, many people have tried to guess what the thorn in the flesh is. Uh, my answer is pretty simple to this. I'm going to give you all their other answers because I think they're actually very helpful. But in general, uh, my answer is the, always the simplest answer. If you're ever curious, which answer is Sean's? Just look for the simplest answer. That's mine, right? And in this case, the simplest answer to what is the thorn in the flesh it is a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. That's what the thorn in the flesh was. That's as simple as it gets. But there are all these other views on what that looks like, and I do think they are helpful for us to look at. Uh, one of the views is, and it's more of a generalized view, is that there was some sort of physical problem that the Apostle Paul had. Uh, and so they've come up with a list of physical problems that the Apostle Paul uh, some that we know he had, that maybe that's the thorn in the flesh. For instance, we know that the Apostle Paul was not very uh, good at seeing. He was partially blind. He didn't see very well. And we see that in his books, actually. When he writes these letters to these churches, actually, he's telling somebody else what to write down. They write it down, and at the end of the letter, he signs his name, and he makes a point of saying at the end of these letters, look with how big of letters I write these words. In other words, you can tell this is really the Apostle Paul because he had to write so big that he could see it, right? It's that kind of idea. So some people think the thorn in the flesh might have been uh, he had bad vision. Uh, some people even say that he probably or potentially got bad vision from the blinding light of seeing Jesus at the first revelation. Possibility. Some people believe he had gotten malaria from all of his travels. Some people believe he had, had epilepsy. Uh, just all of these things that people thought might have been. I mean, honestly, you could say he had been beaten so many times, he probably had lots of thorns in his flesh. Like, he probably had lots of physical difficulties. Uh, some people would go and say uh, maybe it wasn't so much just physical difficulties that he was having, uh, but some people believe that the thorn in the flesh uh, may have actually been temptations of the flesh. But here he was, this great and godly guy who received these amazing revelations from God, and yet he was still tempted by certain sinful things. And it just kind of kept him in line, kept him reminding himself, oh yeah, I'm not the cool one, Jesus is the cool one. Just kind of kept putting him back in his place. And so they would, and there's some that are named, I'm not really going to get into that because I feel like in that way, you almost end up defaming a man of God by trying to list out what his sins might have been that they're not listed in the scripture. But the idea there is that for some, that thorn in the flesh might be some sort of a physical temptation that we could find ourselves suffering from. Others will key on that word messenger and said, no, there were literally people that were messing with the apostle Paul. That literally people just followed him around and harassed him wherever he got, he'd gone. And you can certainly see that happening in Scripture, whether it's the false prophets, the false teachers that are there, right? Uh, there could literally have been people that just made it their job. You actually see uh, amongst the Jews and the Judaizers, there were actually people that were following him at times around from city to city, plotting how they could put him to death. So literally, it could have been messengers from Satan. That's how he saw it, right? Uh, but I still just lean towards kind of the simple understanding there. It says a messenger of Satan sent to torment me. And the way I envision this, actually that word messenger there, uh, they've translated it into the word messenger, but in English it's almost always translated the word angel. An angel of Satan, which we would call a demon, sent to torment him. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't believe that demons can possess human beings. I believe we have the Holy Spirit in us. So a demonic spirit cannot enter into the place where the Holy Spirit is. But I do believe that demonic beings can mess with us. <laughs> and they can poke at us and they can prod at us. 
They can pick on us. They can distract us and do whatever they can to draw us away from the things that God has called us to. The fascinating thing for me in this is this is the Apostle Paul, a man of great faith, a man of great prayer, a man who performed miraculous things, a man who brought healing to people, a man who survived a a poisonous snake bite on one occasion. I mean, this guy, he was like this with God, right? Like they talked and God answered. Well, here it says, in this case, this messenger of Satan sent to torment him, Paul asked three times, It says he implored in verse 8, three times, I implored the Lord that he might leave me. The Lord's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The apostle Paul prayed, and the answer from God was no. You see, here's this struggle that we have as Christians sometimes. We want God to do and think like we think, right? And so we would look at this scenario and go, well, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. He did so much for you, God. You should do this for him. Or we think to ourselves, you're a kind and you're a loving God. You should never let your people suffer ever. That should never happen. That's kind of how we think sometimes. But when we do that, essentially what we're saying is God should be made in our image, that he should think and act the way we want him to think and act. But that's backwards. We're being conformed to his image. We're becoming more like him. So I want you to think through how this might have played out then, uh, that in this, there's these two pieces. Yes, Satan was coming and doing his thing, bringing torture, bringing torment to the apostle Paul, and then God responds by saying, I'm going to let it stand. I'm going to let this continue on. And he tells us there's a reason for this so that Paul won't exalt himself. He won't think too highly of himself. He won't exalt or lift up or boast about himself. That's why God's allowing this to happen. Now, this is the way that I believe this happens in heaven. And you get this from the book of Job. In the book of Job, there's this scene at the beginning of the book where it says, Satan approaches God. And says, I'd like to torment Job. Actually, that's kind of out of order. God says to Job, I'm sorry, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God had to give Satan permission to torment Job. Does that mess with your theology at all? Just a little bit? On one hand, I look at that and I think, ow, I don't want to think of God giving Satan permission to mess with me. On the other hand, I do want to think of Satan as being so weak, he has to ask permission of God. You see the difference there? Because God's still the Lord, even of Satan, even if Satan isn't willing to follow him as Lord. It's just who God is. But in this, God allows things so that he can accomplish something. In this case, the first piece of that allowance is so that the uh, exalting won't happen, but he's going to give a deeper answer in verse 9 to the Apostle Paul, why he said no to his prayer request, which, by the way, if, if you've ever prayed to God and you didn't get the thing you wanted, it's because he's not a genie in the bottle. He's God. 
I'm asking him, and sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no. But like Paul, I'm going to continue to pray until I get an answer. Paul prayed three times. Some of you have been praying thousands of times for something, and you're waiting for an answer from God. Keep praying until you get an answer. Now, sometimes silence is an answer, but sometimes silence is, it's not time yet. But eventually, God brings an answer, and then we submit ourselves to that answer. And so he gives us this reasoning. He gives Paul this reasoning. Reason number one, why he said no to the apostle Paul, and this is really more of a a universal reason, I would say. He says to the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, what he said is, you've already received salvation. Isn't that enough? How How much more do you need? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You had no hope of eternal life. You were destined for hell. You did nothing to deserve salvation, yet I saved you anyway as a gift of grace. You want ice cream too? You want one more thing? I think a general answer is we've received grace. And by the way, when we received grace... We ultimately are receiving the healing from all of these painful things and these difficulties, ultimately, right? Put it this way. If you, and I'm just going to use Paul's problem, have a thorn in the flesh, and let's say that thorn in the flesh is a physical thing, maybe it's a mental thing, maybe it's a spiritual temptation, whatever it is, you have a thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, right? And you go through life begging God to take this away from you. And it doesn't seem like he's answering. It doesn't seem like he's answering. But he is going to save you. Like when you die, what happens? What dies with your body? Your disease, your temptation, your thorn in the flesh. You enter into eternity in the presence of God. You're living in the grace of God eternally. So the answer oftentimes is patience. It's coming. But ultimately, he answers all those prayers. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But ultimately, in his grace, we all receive healing eventually. It's a different way to think about it, but it's important because God is saying to the Apostle Paul, he used to kill my people. Now I'm giving you the greatest visions of anybody who's ever lived. Do you want one more thing from me? When is enough enough? The second answer, though, I think is cool. He says, in addition to my grace is sufficient you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Power is perfected in weakness? Doesn't that sound antithetical? Isn't that like the opposite of true? Like if you want something powerful, let's say I want a powerful engine probably not going to buy a Kia. Not known for their powerful engines, but they're known for weakness. Therefore, power is perfected in weakness. Is that what he's saying? It doesn't make sense to say it like that, but what he is saying is when I am weak, the power of Christ can dwell in me. Here's what happens here. Understand it like this, particularly for us in our culture. We grew up with this whole mentality. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. 
You can accomplish anything you want. You can do it. And we just kind of get spurred on and, oh, I can do anything I want. Fact is, can't do calculus. But my mom said I could do anything. Fact is, can't fly. I've tried. First I tried flapping, then I tried jumping. Neither one of them worked. But it's in our weaknesses, when we realize we can't do things, that we make room for God to do things. Because if we think that we can accomplish anything on our own, then we never have need to ask God to help us with anything. This is why so many people think they're earning their way to heaven by their good works. And you ask them, why, are you gonna, why, why do you think God's going to let you into heaven? Because I'm that good. Because I can do anything if I put my mind to it. No. God's power becomes demonstrated in you when you surrender to Him. His power is perfected in our weakness. His power dwells in us when we are weak, when we surrender to allow Him to work through us. And that's what Paul wants the people of Corinth to see. What was so amazing about his ministry is not that Paul was great, it's that Paul was greatly used by God. When powerful things were happening in Paul's life, it wasn't because Paul worked really hard and said, I can do it. I can do this thing. That's not how it worked. Paul didn't say to himself, you know, self, I think I'm going to go bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit said, would you like me to come along? And Paul was like, no, no, I got this. That's not how that worked. The Spirit of God said, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. And then they went out. It was in the power of God that Paul's strength is. And those are the things he wants to boast about. In fact, Paul would say it this way, you want to know something amazing? I am this weak old dude and God keeps doing great things from me. I'm nothing and yet God power of God begins to be revealed in the Apostle Paul. That's why he is content with weakness in verse 10, with insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties, because for Christ's sake, when he is weak, that's when he's strong. The Corinthians were seeing that as the opposite. Because he was insulted and under distress and under persecution and difficulty, clearly something was wrong with him. I saw a great Spurgeon quote this week. It says, if somebody speaks poorly of you, don't get angry at them. Just be thankful they don't know the rest of the story because you're way worse than they think you are. <laughs> it's kind of the deal here with the Apostle Paul. Could you imagine being the Apostle Paul? Persecuted and put to death Christians. And now you have to go to towns and tell them that Jesus Christ is Lord. He probably never once felt worthy of his salvation. Probably when they persecuted him and they picked up stones to throw at him, to put him to death, he probably thought to himself, I got this coming. I deserve this. You see, his mind was in the right place where he was now fully reliant on God for the things that God was going to do. He says in verse 11, I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you 
For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong, just dripping with sarcasm here. But the issue here is this. Paul is acting like a fool by commending himself, but he wants the Corinthians to recognize this. They're the ones that should have been bragging about Paul's ministry because they experienced it firsthand. So imagine it like this. If, if you're uh, in the city of Corinth and some guy comes to town that you don't know and he says, you're not going to believe this, but I was in this other town a few weeks ago and I healed a sick man. Well, the Corinthians should have said, eh, we've seen it before, right? They should have said, well, Paul did that stuff all the time. We saw it with our own two eyes, but they were somehow more enamored with the stories of the super apostles than they were with their own experiences of what God had done in their midst. Paul lists out the evidence that he was an apostle was signs, wonders, miracles. Paul did those things right in front of the Corinthians. He did it right before their eyes. They saw it. They should have been bragging about him. You think that's good. You should have seen what Paul did this one time. That's what they should have been doing. But they were caught up. They were missing the point. They were, they were bragging about a story they heard about rather than the story that they lived. Paul says it doesn't make any sense. He talks here some more about, and again, I think this is important to recognize, by the way, in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Paul didn't do these things. God did these things through Paul. And as God did these things through Paul, it was the evidence to the Corinthians that he was an apostle. How should they know that they should listen to Paul's teaching over somebody else's? They saw the power of God working through him. And if God is working through him, then maybe I should pay attention to this man. That, that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. And they never saw the power of God in these most eminent apostles, or as some translations call them, the super apostles. They never saw those things. So Paul's trying to express them, look, I'm coming to town. And so here in verse 14, here uh, for this third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden to you, for I don't seek what is yours, but you, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to... Am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty man that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. Have I? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Paul's going back to this. He addressed it in the last chapter, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But one of the accusations against the Apostle Paul is he didn't charge for his ministry. Could you imagine that if we were to send missionaries out? Think about this for a second. So we've got a mission team, you know, we're going to send them out. We're going to send them to some third world country where nobody has the gospel there. And we tell them, now the first thing you do is you show them the terms of service. That you're willing to preach for them if they give you enough money. 
But if they're not willing to pay, don't preach the gospel in that town. That's not what Paul was doing. Paul's going to unbelievers to proclaim the gospel in their midst, the free given, grace given gospel. He was willing, as he says here, to spend or be expended for their souls. He was willing to spend his own money or even spend his own life so that they could be saved. You see what Paul's trying to explain to them? Look, I'm not getting paid, not because I'm an amateur and they're professionals. I'm not getting paid because I love you. That's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. He even kind of puts it in a very simple illustration. Children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He's saying, I've been a father to you. You've been children to me. I don't expect you to pay for me. That's not my expectation of you. I'm the father. I should take care of you. Believe me, parents, if we knew another way, we would go about it, right? Like, put these kids to work young so we can live in the way that we'd like to expect to live. But that's not the way that works. We love our kids. We want the best for them. We save up for them. We invest in them. We provide for them. And oftentimes, by the way, when kids come into the world, they have no clue that they're receiving this. They have no clue that these are gifts until they have kids. And they start to realize, wait a second, is this what my parents were doing for me? Surely they didn't give anything up so I could have something I wanted. That can't be. They start to recognize it. The Apostle Paul had surrendered of himself to the Corinthians. He had given things up for them. And he's planning to go visit them a third time And he wants them to understand, I'm not going to bother you again that time. I don't want to burden you in any way. I just want you to know the truth of the gospel. Well, here's where he brings out his real motives. And this is great for us in verse 19, because it really kind of helps us understand this strange section here in chapter 10, 11, and 12, where Paul is kind of bragging about himself, just feels wrong. Paul's going to explain why this is happening. Verse 19, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Paul really gets to the heart of why he's going through this game with them of bragging. All of this was a design to teach the people of Corinth something. He's not defending himself because, again, Paul really doesn't care what they think about him. But what he is doing in this defense is he's teaching them how to recognize the true apostles from the false apostles, the true teachers from the false teachers. And so he's been just kind of dropping each one of these points in chapters 10, 11, and 12. He's just been kind of dropping these little ideas, these little thoughts on how they can recognize the difference between true and false. And there's several of them in there, obviously, I think that you can pick up on. Uh, But I think ultimately the idea is this return to Jesus Christ. 
that, that Jesus is the hero of the story, that he's the point of every sermon, that he's the, the purpose of every missionary journey, that it's about the fame of Jesus, not the fame of the preacher. He's been just kind of just putting this in there, and I think he said it the best in chapter 11. He's just afraid that they're going to be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I would say it this way, though, if you're, if you're looking at teachers, if you're trying to decide if, if a preacher or a teacher or some new apostle or prophet, just ask, you this, ask yourself this question about their ministry. Is their ministry about the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ? If it's not, if it's just a big show, if it ends up making them more famous than Jesus, then maybe you shouldn't be listening to that teacher. If they've convinced you that Christianity is so complicated you couldn't understand it without their help, then maybe they don't have a right understanding of Christianity. If, they think that, if you think that they're trying to convince you that it's not enough to trust in Jesus Christ, that you have to trust in Jesus Christ and, and they start listing out all these other things you have to do to be pleasing to God, there's a problem with that teaching. It's a false gospel. It's a different Jesus. And he's been laying this out with this kind of amazing uh, sarcastic rhetoric that he has, this argument back and forth where he talks about, I'll boast about how weak I am and how great Jesus is. I'll boast about how much suffering I've had because Jesus is worth all my suffering. I'll boast about how I'd freely given myself for you because I want you to hear the gospel. Paul just has been doing kind of this amazing weaving of this boasting just so the purpose that they would understand. And maybe I should just say it this way. Maybe I could uh, make it even more clear. You have a responsibility as believers to examine those who are teaching you, to see what their motives are, to recognize their motives. As the teacher, this is an awkward conversation to have, in case you're curious. You have a responsibility to question my motives. Why am I doing this? Why, why is Pastor Sean here? Is Pastor Sean trying to become famous or rich? Does Pastor Sean even love Jesus? I might just be a really good speaker and like McDonald's didn't need good speakers, so I came here. Like you have to examine the motive of the person. If the motive of the person isn't to glorify Jesus Christ, then there's a problem there. Paul's teaching the church in Corinth because Paul, he's not going to live forever. What's great about this is this is all written down for us. And of course, we know now, it's pretty clear to us that the teaching of Paul has lasted, right? Because it's all focused on Jesus Christ. It's become pretty clear to us because we don't even know the names of the most eminent apostles, the super apostles that he was fighting about. Those guys have been forgotten in history, but Paul's been recorded for us, passed down and, and preserved for us by God so we could get to this point. So here's the deal. He's coming to visit them again, and he's trying to teach them these things for a purpose because he doesn't want to have these uncomfortable conversations when he gets to Corinth. You guys ever gone to a family reunion and you didn't really want to go to? <laughs> like you think to yourself... Woohoo! Family reunion. This is going to be awesome. All my family's going to be there. And then you start thinking about who your family is. <laughs> and it kind of goes from a joyous occasion <laughs> to this awkward obligation. <laughs> and you kind of think about some of these struggles maybe you've had with your family. 
Paul's looking at a church and he should be coming to visit them. There should be this amazing, amazing, awesome reunion. However, some people have snuck into that church who've been speaking poorly about the Apostle Paul. Now he's going into this kind of awkward situation. He's trying to prepare the people that they can solve this before he gets there. And so he's afraid that when he gets there, it's going to be all these relational problems, strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Nobody wants to go to that. Could you imagine having to go to something like that? It's like your high school reunion. It's like just all that junk from high school just pulled right back up and you're right back in that moment, right? It's just so awkward. Paul doesn't want that. Again, why does he not want that? Because it's uncomfortable for him? No, because he loves them. So he's just trying to set the record straight. He has another fear as well in verse 21, that there are those who have returned to their sinful ways, impurity, immorality, and sensuality. Each of those words, uh, a different way of saying the same thing. They all go back to sexual sin, uh, which was a real issue, by the way, there in Corinth. Um, Corinth is in this kind of hybrid Greek-Roman society, right? And they're inundated with sexuality and sexual images. It's, it's all around them. In fact, uh, throughout history, up until uh, less than 100 years ago, there were museums that had entire sections of the museum that was locked off. You couldn't go into them because all the statues and all the things that they found in these historical digs from this time in history were too sexualized for the average viewer to see. So you had to be of a certain age and you actually had to pay, pay the museum keeper extra money to go into those areas. And it was often after hours after the rest of the museum was shut down because of all these sexual images. And so for us, like we recognize that whether it's TV or internet, we are, we're kind of flooded with these sexualized images. It, it was like that for them as well. Just think about every historic uh, sculpture that you see from that time period. Somebody's naked every single time. That stuff was not just, by the way, in an art museum. That was on the walls of their cities. It was, all, it was like going to the mall, right? You go to the wall, mall and you're walking by Victoria's Secret and you go, whoop, that's not a secret anymore. And you just keep walking. You have to look away. Like she just revealed all of her secrets over there. What's going on? It was like that for every store in these cultures. And for them, it was an act of worshiping their false gods. But literally, you would go to the bakery and there would be nudity etched in the wall. It was just everywhere. It was all around them. And so Paul, think about these people who he's led to Christ. He's bringing them to this, this higher understanding of the things of God and what God desires of us and how God would view this. And they've been repentant, but there's this fear that some of them are still stuck in this. And he just wants to see that dealt with. And so he's going to look at that next week. So there you have it. That's like four sermons in one getting through chapter 12 there. Um, however, you cannot exchange them for Sundays. So you can't say, we got four sermons this week so I can take the next four weeks off, right? Is that the way that works? No. You want to come back because there's only one more chapter left in this book and you don't want to miss that. And then we start the book of Galatians, which is going to be pretty exciting as well. So uh, let me go ahead and pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, uh, so many wonderful things that we find in these books. Your word has been written for us uh, to build us up and to edify us. And I pray that's what happens as we go through these, that it's upbuilding for us. Father, that you would be bringing us to a greater understanding of who you are and what it is you desire to accomplish through us. Lord, I would pray for those who, maybe they have a thorn in their flesh. Maybe it's a physical difficulty. Maybe it's a physical temptation. 
Maybe there's people in their lives that just seem to be there to mess with them all the time. Or maybe there literally is demonic elements that are harassing and tormenting them. Father, I would pray alongside them that you would bring them relief. But I would also pray in this that we would be surrendered to your will. Father, I pray that we would examine those that we allow to teach us. To know whether their heart or their intention is to reveal the truth of God or if they have some other selfish intention behind themselves. Father, I pray that we wouldn't allow ourselves to to live in dispute and anger, but we would deal with issues, solve these problems as far as is possible for us, that we would live at peace with all people. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.